Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and thanks for tuning in to another episode. As COVID continues to envelope 2020, the future of mental health has hit the spotlight. Specifically, what the implications will be on individuals, society and the industry at large. Dr. Grant Blaschke has been a practicing GP for 25 years and is the lead clinical advisor for Beyond Blue. With almost 30 years clinical experience, Grant has a strong understanding of mental ill health conditions and the important role that primary care plays in helping identify, refer and help patients get the help they need when they need it. Grant is an author of five books and has co-authored over 125 peer-reviewed publications. He has also been active in helping to train GPs in China to prioritise screening for mental health. This week, Grant discusses COVID-19 and its impact on the mental health sector, as well as the challenges faced during the pandemic, including managing workplace mental health. Grant also highlights what he believes will be the three main challenges that will continue to face the mental health sector in the near future, being prevention, equity, and the integration of digital technology. Dr. Grant Blaschke, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me and uh, and share your story and your journey and everything that you know with, uh, well, not everything you know, but as much as you can with our listeners today. Yeah, lovely to speak to you, Sam. Doctor, uh, I thought we might start with uh, something a bit different. Uh, we might, um, you know, break the ice with the four H's and uh, I just, we'll start with the first one, which is hobbies. What hobbies are you into and what do you do in your downtime? Oh, okay. That's a nice question to start with. I've got lots of hobbies. I'm, you know, in Melbourne, we're still very much in lockdown and I'm like, okay, well, I have to just keep doing the hobbies. Uh, I play quite a lot of music, saxophone and drums and a couple of mates that we play very bad jazz together, and um, but we think it sounds good. And I like a bit of kayaking, keep fit out oh, on nice. the bay, out in nature. So between all, yeah, between all that, that that keeps me out of trouble. Are you actually in a band? Like, do you actually go perform, or you just guys, you guys just get together and have a jam? Yeah, you know, there what we were performing for a while, but the pub closed down. Uh. Still trying to work out if it was us. <laughs> or they were just due to close down anyway. So, you know, we're, we're not loaded with talent, i got to say, but, but we certainly get a lot of enjoyment. Oh, that's good. Well, that's uh, very interesting to hear that. So drums and uh, and you like getting outside and spending some time in nature with the kayak. What a, what a great way to uh, to get out there um, uh, and spend some time in nature. Secondly, I want to know the next H is heroes. Who have been heroes in your lifetime or professionally or personally that have just really helped you, whether it's whether you know them or not, just some mentors? Because um, I, I read you, you're very big on this. Oh, look, there's a couple of people I'll mention. Um, I'm very excited uh, to be working currently on this thing called climate reality training yes. with uh, former Vice President Al Gore. Wow. And this is the sixth training I've done with him. We've got 10,000 people this year because we're running it online, but essentially learning about climate change and, and, and you know, signing up to do active leadership like your public presentations or, in this case, it might be Zoom presentations. So I think his commitment and his sort of vision on how serious this climate change issue is has been really inspiring to me. And the second one I'll go... And even not just because she's the chair of Beyond Blue, but I think Julia Gillard's pretty amazing um, and is doing post-politics life beautifully. And um, I've just been reading her book, uh, Women and Leadership, which I I must admit, I went to the bookshop and bought five copies 
Wow. One for my mum, one for my wife, one for my daughter, and a couple for my daughter-in-law because it just really reminded me, and I don't know if people saw her on um, Q&A, but still women put up with an awful lot of barriers and and um, and I just think her interviewing, you know, some of the great female leaders around the world and pulling it all together is just fantastic. Mate, what uh, two amazing people there, and uh, I mean, Al Gore, what a what a leader he is, and uh, and Julia Gillard again. Uh, I mean, I I haven't read the book, or I haven't got it yet, but uh, I mean, have you have you read it yet? I have, yeah, I've been reading it with my wife, and um, it's it's a really good combination of sort of reviewing the science of like, well, you know, what do women actually experience? What happens if you get uh, a male and a female to present exactly the same material and how people respond. But then all that sort of qualitative uh, research then gets linked back to speaking to, you know, some of the um, great leaders of our time, um, you know, former politicians and prime yeah. ministers. And so, yeah, I, I, I think it's great. But anyway, be... I'm not just plugging it because she's our chair of Beyond Blue. <laughs> I actually think genuinely she's quite an amazing it'd, it'd person be... and, you know, It'd be super interesting to read. And, and did you find that there's actually things transferable to anyone in leadership, not just women? Like, is it are you finding a benefit for yourself as well? Yeah, look, I think it is. But, but I really think that in some sense, you know, for women in leadership, even now, despite, you know, a lot of changes in recent decades, the sort of rubbish that they have to put up with, the sort of tightrope that they have to walk, is just not the same as what men are dealing with and you know so I, I just think that she's um, highlighted some really difficult issues um, that we have as a society about supporting our women into leadership and giving them a fair go yeah no that's uh, that's really good well I've, I've put it on my list I've written it down and so I'm going to have to get out there and get it but um, mate thanks very much for answering uh, that part of the of the four H's the next one the third one I have is hardships what hardships have you encountered in your career or in your life that uh, you've had to overcome? Well, I got hit with a really nasty vestibular, you know, which is your balance centre in the ear about 10 years ago. Wow. Life was ticking along, went for a drive to work, just completely lost my balance for about two years. And it was like being on a ride at Luna Park for two years. And my lovely wife of 30 years now uh, supported me beautifully. But um, probably made me a better GP, a little bit more sympathetic when people are dealing with a really nasty chronic condition. And uh, so I'm gonna that that definitely tops the list of hardships in my life uh, so far. That would have been challenging. Did you have to spend most of your days just lying down? Yeah. Look, you realise when you've got a chronic condition like that, there's this whole sort of other world out there of people who you know they're not working. They're sort of just getting through day by day, yeah. and um, they're sort of invisible until you're one of them. And uh, and I, I definitely learn a lot of lessons about you know recovery and healing and um, looking after yourself through a, a difficult condition. So um, a, a good lesson as a as a GP to, to sort of be able to put yourself in the shoes of your patients a bit better. Yeah. Well, uh, well, I'm glad you're better, uh, and uh, and yeah, what a what a tough thing to go through. Uh, the last and the fourth one I have is highlights. What are the biggest highlights? I mean, going through the amount of things you've done so far, Grant, in your lifetime. I, I mean, there's so many things that you have been a part of and that you are still a part of at the moment. I don't know how you fit it all in, but I'm keen to hear what are the highlights of your of your life or your career so far. Well, it's been pretty easy. They're actually family highlights. So the last six months, uh, two of my kids, two, my two sons got married. Wow. And one of them got married literally the day before the lockdown. Oh. So um, we, we almost cancelled the wedding. You just made it through the door. And then the other son, a few months before that, got married up in northern New South Wales, which is, I think, where you are. Yes. Just literally the day before the, the big fires hit. I feel like we've been dodging these natural disasters wow. and uh, happily having some great celebrations uh, in the gaps. 
That's uh, what a great thing. I mean, spending time with your family, but also those milestones, uh, something you must be super proud of. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to enjoy the good times. And, and I think uh, this, this has sort of king hit a lot of people with this uh, pandemic that we're in at the moment. And you really uh, got to enjoy those good times when they come. Mate, and it's definitely something I want to touch on with the pandemic and, and your thoughts on this and, and the relationship to mental health. But if we go to your background, uh, you weren't always in mental health per se, were you? No, look, I, I'm qualified as a GP. Yes. And um, and then I guess pretty quickly working as a GP, I sort of took to the heavy sort of psychological content that's in GP consults. And um, it's also a bit in the blood. Uh, my dad's a retired psychiatrist, but he did some of the very early research studies of GP management of mental illness, you know, back in the late. 60s and some of the first big randomised control trials and things. So, you know, it was sort of always a little bit uh, on the map as an issue. But certainly working as a GP, you know, at least a third, if not more, of our consults have got quite a strong psychological loading. Yeah. And it was interesting, the um, College of GPs Health of the Nation survey of GPs um, confirmed that, you know, saying that GPs say their most common consultation now is a psychological consultation. It's pretty amazing, you know, more than costs wow. and colds and medical certificates and things. And, and that's what we've seen is, is the GPs playing sort of an increasingly important role as part of our mental health workforce in Australia. Yeah, I mean, that primary care is so important, isn't it? And I, I mean, you've been a GP now for what, over 25 years? Yeah, yep. Uh, yeah, I've got to work it out. Yeah, getting close to thirty years. Yep. And so, and back. I mean, when you first started, was this was this how it sort of came to your? Uh, I mean, was this back mid nineties, early nineties? When you're looking at this, going, hang on, you know, there's a really big uh, a, a big challenge here, but also something that I need to get into a little bit further. Is that is that what made you want to sort of explore that psychology part a little bit further? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because general practice is quite different to the other specialties. You know, we're not confined by one disease type mm. or one social, you know, one demographic, you know, not just kids or not just older people, not just heart problems. So it's a very processy part of the health workforce and, and the relationship and the social context and the psychological aspects of the consultations are a really big part of it. So it is about, you obviously need good medical content and good medical skills. But beyond that, there's a lot of overlay of, of sort of the relationships, a very central part of general practice. And so mental health comes into that very powerfully. Was was your dad, uh, your father Tim? Was was he the the inspiration for you to get into the the medical profession in the first place? Yeah, I guess it was. I mean, it, it's you sort of fall into these things. Um, uh, I mentioned that I do have a hobby of being a musician, so mm. I remember very um, arrogantly in second year medicine going along to the dean and saying, you know, your course is rubbish, and actually, I've always wanted to be a drummer. So I'll see you later. And and he said, oh, you know, that's lovely, Grant. Why don't you defer? You never know. You might want to come back. And so I was very grateful because wow. after a year of being very unsuccessful musicians and carrying around the main band's equipment, um, I was begging to go back into the medical course. So at one point, important point there is, you know, I've been talking recently quite a lot in the media about the um, – the students who are all sort of picking their school subjects and working yeah. out what they want to do at university and just reminding them that it's not all linear, you know, it's not all or nothing. And especially these days, I think young people will find that they'll chop and change directions and careers as they go through and, and shouldn't feel like these are sort of all or nothing decisions they're making in these, you know, in their late teens, early 20s, where they're sort of exploring a few different career options. There is a fair bit of pressure on that stage of your life, isn't there, to know what you want to do next? I think there is. And I do think this COVID pandemic is just amplifying that stress at the moment. You know, there's a real sense that 
they've got to make the right decision and what jobs are going to be there. And yeah, they've got a lot going on in that group, I reckon. So back to the dean, did you have to then go back to the same dean and say, oh, listen, I made a mistake. Do you mind if I come back into the course? Is that what you had to do? Yeah, pr- pretty much. <laughs> would you Would you like us for him to eat your humble pie? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what a sliding doors moment though. I mean, because you could have taken off in a completely di- different direction really in life. Well, you can. You know, you have the, you have these sort of moments, you know, a little bit of luck as well. And obviously I, I had a dean who, uh, was sort of uh, generous and and sort of gave me a go. So you know you you have these moments, I guess. And so, how long into that uh, you're a GP, you're working in the profession, um, and how long into it do you start to think, okay, I need to go further down this psychology, the mental health sort of route, and delve deep into that? How? Um, it, look, it was pretty. Pretty soon afterwards, I was working as an academic as well as the general practice at Monash University, and um, I was working um, in what what was called the Department of General Practice then, and had some really good mentors, and they wanted to set up a Masters of General Practice Psychiatry by distance education. So, you know, they'd recognised that there was a real um, gap where GPs were wanting more training in mental health skills. So over the next few years, I was really absorbed in setting up the Masters of GP Psychiatry, and we'd get about 40 or 50 GPs a year who'd enrol, and they'd come in from all over Australia, so we're obviously tapping a need out there. Interesting, a lot of them were in their 40s. You know, they'd done general practice for 15, 20 years and said, oh, you know, I think I want to learn a little bit more about mental health, and so it was interesting. Yeah, well, okay, so you went into that, and, and I mean, it's a big part of what you're doing now, uh, mental health, but but you also have taken a keen interest um, and, and showing some great leadership in the environmental health as well. Tell us a little bit about that and how that's come about. Um, well, I guess I've always had this sort of, you know, uh, non-scientific, just sort of, uh, if you like, spiritual sense of connection to nature, as mentioned a lot in the kayaking. And, and um, so I was fortunate to come across a, a great doctor, Professor David Shearman, who was trying to set up this group called Doctors for the Environment Australia. And together we uh, got doctors from states all around the, the country and um, it was a, the beginning, I think it was about the year 2000, and we set up Doctors for the Environment Australia. And that's a, a booming organisation now and really encourages doctors to join who are concerned about the many environmental issues that affect ourselves and ultimately the, the health of our patients and the health of future generations. Well, I mean, it's, it's such an interesting link, but something that is becoming more and more prevalent, uh, especially with the younger generation coming through. Look, I think that's right. We saw those um, really quite historical marches around the world about climate change, the climate marches and Greta Thunberg giving the older generation a serve and, and saying, you guys, yeah. you're stuffing it up for the future. And hard to ignore, and and I think there really is an intergenerational issue because, you know, unfortunately, when you look into the climate science, um, you know, by 2050, we've really got some problems starting to arise. I mean, I think the younger generation feel that more urgent action is needed on on addressing a number of environmental issues, but particularly the urgent issue of climate change. And is the Doctors for the Environment Australia, is that about getting GPs uh, or any medical uh, professional to come on board and say, is, is it from the mental health standpoint or is it from um, so, something else? Now, so Doctors for the Environment Australia, it comes from sort of broader health, public health. Okay. Um, and mainly involves doctors. And there's a, another organisation that arose since then and been involved in it just as an advisor to that, led by Fiona Armstrong called the Climate and Health Alliance, which is a good thing to know about if you're not a doctor, but you're really interested in climate change. 
And um, they're really punching above their weight as an organisation. You know, they've come up with a, um, a strategy for Australia, um, a strategy for individual states on how we protect health um, from a climate change perspective and really interesting work coming from them. So they're called CAHA, Climate and Health Alliance. It's so it's so interesting and so niche, but yet, I mean, when you think about the health problems that can uh, be associated with climate change, there's actually quite a lot, isn't there, when you sit down and really think about it? Look, there is. And, um, I'm fortunate at the University of Melbourne for a decade, we've been running a course called Planetary and Global Health in the Masters of Public Health. Really relaxing topics. We're about to run it again next week. We cover climate change, nuclear weapons, air pollution, COVID-19, water and sanitation. So a bunch of very relaxing topics. And we've got more than 50 students again this year. Um, And it reminds me every year that, you know, we happen to be at a time in history where the global population has boomed, um, global consumption has boomed, and um, there's a concept called planetary boundaries where we really are tapping on the door of some of the limits of the finite resources on Earth, you know, be that the climate or the oceans or the deforestation or biodiversity that, you know, as we absolutely grow and exponentially as a species, some of that pressure on the systems is really starting to, to uh, show itself. Uh, it's really fascinating uh, and really meaningful and highly relevant. Uh, if we go a bit a bit more niche now, with, with mental health and climate change, um, I mean, beyond blue, I mean, the recent droughts and, and whatnot that we've seen, um, the the aspiration of our 2050 goal with carbon, I mean, are you seeing or is beyond blue seeing uh, that there's, you know, that that uh, climate distress or, or anxiety, climate anxiety is actually becoming really, really uh, a key part and a focus of, of inbound um, challenges or mental health challenges? Well, I think the first thing to say is Beyond Blue's got a much broader agenda around mental health and yeah. is focused on, you know, depression, anxiety, suicide prevention, and, and there's many causes of that. You know, within that, you know, there's certainly recognition that people getting caught up in, in you know, the terrible fires we've had in Australia or droughts or extreme weather events, you know, get. Um, substantial mental health fallout from that, you know, be it sort of acute traumatic anxiety after being caught up in an event or some of the flow-on later effects, you know, loss of livelihood or displacement. So um, I think to that extent, you know, Beyond Blue, we've certainly had a surge in our support service um, during the fires and um, we're very much looking at supporting people with mental health issues, regardless of the cause, whether it's you know, loss of job, environmental issues, COVID-19, you know, there's a whole suite of um, mm. issues that impact on people's mental health. If we, if we talk then about Beyond Blue, uh, you are the lead clinical advisor. Um, how long have you been in the role and how have you found being with the organisation? I've really enjoyed it. Look, I've been there about three years. Um, and I thought I could just point out a few key activities that I've been involved in. Um, so essentially my role is providing a sort of a clinical perspective because there's all sorts of people with great you know, marketing, communication skills, all sorts of different skills and, and a little bit of the puzzle that I bring is sort of the clinical perspective. So one of the most exciting projects that I've been involved in there is that we... Um, commissioned these two documents called A Guide to What Works. Um, They were actually, um, they've been going for a number of years, but we've just updated them all. So there's one about depression and one about anxiety. And they're basically systematic reviews of um, the evidence by a team at the University of Melbourne. So you can, um, it's written for lay people. So you can quickly have a look at oh, what's the evidence for this various psychological treatment for anxiety? Or what's the evidence for these medications? 
but we also cover complementary and lifestyle approaches. And so readers can quickly have a look at the sort of infographics, you know, three yeah. thumbs up, really effective, question mark, not much evidence. Very valuable for general public, but for health professionals as well, some of your listeners, I think it's a great resource, a guide to what works. Well, uh, I mean, what a, yeah, and there's a, a link I think they go to, they just go to the Beyond Blue website and they search that up. Is that correct? Yeah, easy to find. Yeah. Um, but I'm using it with my patients because they do come in and often, you know, with suggestions about complementary medicine that I might not be very knowledgeable about. I go, oh, yeah, there's one thumb up for that. Um, that means there's, you know, a couple yeah. of studies around about it. Or I might say, look, if you're really thinking psychological approaches, interesting that CBT seems to have three thumbs up to your panic attacks. Maybe we should give that a go. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it gives people a sort of a guardrail, a gold standard of, of what the evidence actually says. And so a great team at the University of Melbourne led by Associate Professor Nikki Reevely pulled those together. We're very grateful and they've just recently been updated. Wow, that's uh, what a great project. Um, and... Uh, it certainly s- seems like Beyond Blue, I mean, they're going in a, in a very good direction. Uh, there seems to be plenty of activity coming out, um, you know, um, and being very proactive. Uh, have you found that's been part of the, the culture as being part of that grant? Absolutely. I mean, another example, I think, of just the agility for a big organisation is when coronavirus hit, we just had a huge jump in access to our support service. So just to give you a sense, we set up, a corona-specific um, mental wellbeing support service, more than 600,000 contacts since early April. And we've wow. got a forum where people can chat online to each other, more than 900,000 engagements since early April. And our website, the coronavirus website, has got all sorts of articles about every perspective you can think about coronavirus. You know, How do I manage at work? How do I manage at home? What if I've got coronavirus? You know, great resources out there. And we're really, I think, playing an important role supporting people through this time. I think you were quoted somewhere, Grant, as saying that um, uh, that you had almost, at some stage, it might be more now, but seven times the number of people uh, on that landing page for coronavirus than were uh, on, the, on the bushfire. Um, that's right, because look, I think the national scale of this yeah. meant that we, and just to give you a sense, you know, we had a huge jump in contact. I also think, to be honest, for a lot of people, um, it's really rocked their sense of certainty. Yeah. You know, we've been pottering along, you know, worrying if our football team won or it didn't, and, you know, <laughs> so yeah. Small things, you know, who's going to win Master Chef? Although maybe they're big things. I don't know. Maybe they're important. But, you know, I think our general sense that next week was going to be like last week. Yeah. And then to suddenly go, well, hang on, maybe it's not. It's not going to work. I lost my job or my kids are home from school. So I think it really can hit a lot of people. Um, and a different group of people, you know, people who hadn't really had mental health issues, particularly in the past. And, probably didn't have much knowledge or skills to deal with it. And so in, in talking about the pandemic and coronavirus, I mean, no one, I mean, you, a year ago, you would never thought something like this could could or would happen to the effect that it has um, and that we're now seeing it around the world. Tell, tell us uh, about that from a Beyond Blue point of view. I mean, how, you mentioned the agility before, but, I mean, are you extremely proud of the way they've reacted? And what's the role that Beyond Blue is playing during this right now? I am extremely proud to be involved with Beyond Blue. I mean, uh, I'm, I guess as the clinical advisor, I'm, I'm less involved with all the machinery of how a big organisation that like that runs. Yeah. And I could see them handing us out laptops, you know, earlier in the year as soon as it all started and, getting us all guidelines on how to work at home. I was thinking, oh, this is a bit much. But of course they were right. And I, and I think in terms of governance and, and management, we've managed not to miss a base with, you know, quite a few hundred people working outside a central office and working very well together. 
um, to provide a, a service during a sort of a difficult time. So I've enjoyed it. Um, you know, there's a lot of moving parts in a big organisation like this, but to be able to pull together a support service and a website and, and help to be able to support a lot of people in a really difficult time, I, I think it's just been terrific. And do you think, I mean, mental health as it relates to the pandemic, obviously we're seeing an increase in, in, in inquiries, increase in, unfortunately, in people... Um, you know, showing signs of mental health, uh, mental ill health during this period. As a mental health professionals, I mean, now is a really critical time. How do you see the role of mental health professionals playing out during this, and and some of the impacts coming from this? Yeah, look, I think that what we've got is you know quite a challenge to the system, and in some ways, it's just amplified a lot of the deficiencies in the system. And, and so there are things that we could do better and, and I think sometimes a big bump like this provides opportunities. So some of the principles are that we want to match you know, the intensity of care to the severity of illness. And so that means that you know, if someone's got more mild issues, they might find they can chat on online forums or go to the Beyond Blue website or many of the other websites that are out there, you know, Headspace or Black Dog, lots of resources out there. The other, for people with sort of less severe issues, another new development that Beyond Blue's been supporting is called the New Access Program. This sort of interesting model based on a model in the UK where we're providing low-intensity CBT by coaches these are community people who've done extra training, but they're not psychologists or social workers or OTs. They're community people, and they're basically helping people with the sort of more simple end of CBT approaches, problem solving, and things like that. Yeah. So, that, and then, so sorry, you go. I was going to say, does that free them free up? You know, obviously to try and cater for that that gap, that missing gap that can sort of be on the verge of having something but not understanding it and getting that, try and make it more available for them to be able to get that early support and early help? That's that's right. Look, it's a very sort of operationalized and systematic approach and has a lot of safety checks in it. You know, yeah. people make you fill out a lot of psychometric surveys and yep. they score too high, they get sent off to the psychologist. But, um, you know, beyond that, I think, what an incredible development to just roll out telehealth in yeah. super fast speed. So as a GP, I provide GP care on telehealth now, and I've been doing quite a lot of GP mental health plans, and then people can chat to their psychologists also on telehealth if need be, funded through the Medicare system. So I think this was one example of a health system just evolving what's been taking yeah. decades to occur. And within the space of a week, they're just like, right, telehealth is happening, <laughs> do it. Um, you know, so sometimes I think a big crisis like this does create a few opportunities. And it's like it's something that like, and rural and remote communities have been doing for some time now, but to actually have to do it uh, in more urban and regional areas has been has taken some adjusting. So um, it's been really interesting to watch that roll out. And it's had its fair challenges as well, but... Um, uh, I mean, you think it's been successful and you think, I, I assume, Grant, that you've seen, you think that this is something coming out of COVID that you would like to see continue to some effect? Most certainly. I mean, certainly from a mental health, you know, anecdotal N equals one GP experience, yeah. it's been a really good way for me to follow up with quite a lot of vulnerable people okay, and have a good chat. It's, been, it's interesting, I found most of them are quite happy just to do voice like they don't necessarily want the video chat. Um, and right. But having them on the phone and saying, right, how are you going? And we've got your scripts organised and have you been to see the psychologist? And, you know, so uh, so I think that, um, I think it's a great development. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out and the extent to which it's supported, uh, you know, sort of in a post-COVID type world. But, it's certainly a good initiative and a timely initiative. Just more broadly, we know from pandemics that, you know, often the fallout, apart from people who are affected by the infection, 
from public health point of view, it's all that chronic disease that falls by the wayside, you know, diabetes management and following up that abnormal pap smear or that breast lump or whatever it was. So we really don't want people to sort of fall off the radar in terms of um, their primary care health care. Yeah. So I think it's a really good development. I was hearing in some instances people were just, um, uh, you know, they were worried about post-COVID because people just weren't going or getting help for the things that they would have typically done. And, and so there was some fear of, from the GP perspective, that um, that people were leaving things that they would otherwise get checked because of, because of COVID and, and that they could actually, you know, potentially spiral into something a lot worse um, because they didn't get that interaction. That's exactly right. That's exactly the point, you know, that you, you don't want – in the wash-up of it all, you'll find more people – you know, had had morbidity from not following up their diabetes properly yeah. and actually from catching COVID. Yeah. So, you know, I think having a strong active primary care system that we've supported with this sort of telehealth innovation is great. If we, I know Beyond Blue's been, uh, you know, quite big in the workplace mental health side of things and I know that you've also uh, regularly spoken out about uh, mental health in the workplace. How do you think this has impacted the COVID situation, you know, mental health within the workplace setting? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, Beyond Blue is very committed to supporting people in the workplace. We've got a whole subsection within Beyond Blue called Heads Up, which has enormous amount of free resources for employers, employees, lots of good stuff on there. But I think add to that the lens of COVID. And I've been involved speaking to another number of big and small organisations about working from home and the changes and the challenges that's making um, people have to deal with at the moment. So I think there's a couple of things I'd say. Uh, I guess as a GP, for me, I've always had that very biomedical idea of mental health living somewhere inside the person's head. And as I've understood more and more about sort of workplace mental health, you realise actually the well-being literally lives within the um, organisational structures. So to give you an example, if you're in a toxic workplace and you are loaded up with unmanageable work and lack of support, 100% you are going to run aground with your mental health eventually. And I see these people in general practice. So good governance, good workplace practices, good support from what we call your mentally healthy workplaces is absolute gold in terms of protecting people's mental health. And the employer, I mean, the employer and the culture at a, at a workplace um, setting, I mean, the the, uh, the contribution or, or the, the factor that it can play in a person's well-being and mental health space is really important. Um, and critical, isn't it? It is. And and I think increasingly, you know, there's an economic as well as a humanistic yes. motivation for businesses. Yeah. Coopers, this big study, they found every dollar you put into making a workplace mentally healthy, you get $2.30 back ultimately. But I think as leaders, you set the culture very much. And that might be, you know, speaking a little bit about your own vulnerabilities as a leader doesn't mean you have to be your soul, but just to setting the culture that it's okay if people are having a hard time, especially during COVID. I think, you know, having that as a topic, you know, having some in-services or some Zoom meetings where you'll get a mental health expert to come and talk is great. Supporting your managers so that they really know what are all the services knowing what sort of signs to look out for in their employees. You know, someone's performance drops off or they stop attending things or they're uncharacteristically moody. You think, gee, that's not right, what's going on there. So all these things, I think, can add to the strength of an organisation to look after their employees' mental health. And typically, Grant, I guess the... The, the culture has been somewhat, you know, when you get to the door, you leave all your problems outside and you have to come and, you know, just do your job. But 
I mean, we're seeing more and more these days that it's it's so much more integrated than, uh, and we need to look at that outside of the work hours just as much as what's going on inside, um, you know, to, to create those mentally healthy workplaces. One of the issues during the COVID pandemic is the blurring of the boundaries between yeah. your home identity and your work identity. Mm. And this can go both ways. So, you know, I think, uh, employers that had the fantasy that they'd just hand out a bunch of laptops and get everyone to work from their couch at home are in for a bit of a rude shock because um, for those employees, the first issue is that, you know, they may find that they are working in all sorts of odd hours and sort of quite prone to burnout if they don't have a mechanism for say, switching off at the end of the day. What I've been advising, you know, patients and and colleagues is set out a, a sort of a, a routine and some symbolic um, changes that that ensure you you know you're in work mode. So you might put on some work clothes, have a workplace in the house, and also set the time. You know, say at five o'clock, six o'clock, whatever it is, I'm going to turn off the laptop, turn off my phone, put it on airplane mode if I have to, and now you're home. So I think that. Um, creating uh, a work identity that switches off and is not the same as your home identity is really important. Yeah, it's a really good point. Uh, and the, you're right, the, the boundaries are blurred and uh, and there's you know other things as well like isolation. Uh, I mean, sometimes people think, oh, now it's great. I get to stay home and save time and commute. But then you know it can be quite lonely at some points as well. And so then there's that isolation factor and, uh, and and other related challenges with doing this remote working, which I'm sure we're going to see the impacts of this possibly, you know, in the coming months, if not years. I think isolation is really tough. And, you know, particularly in states like Victoria where this we've gone into lockdown too, it's a bit of a marathon for people. I feel like it's like, um, you know, what we have this thing called the Great Victorian Bike Ride. And you're riding up to the top of the mountain and you get around the corner and you think you've made it through and they're like, no, there's a whole other mountain, you're back in lockdown. It's like a false top, and is it? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. So a couple of things there. If you've got friends or family that you know are just isolated, lock it, lock in a you know, regularly weekly time where you might be able to go for a walk with them or at a minimum give them a call. I think that the voice, like through phone or video, is better than just texting them. Um, and there's a lot of hours for someone who's single and living on their own to manage. Um, so I think a bit of compassion in that direction and, and looking out for them is a really good idea. On the other side, you know, we've got a bunch of people who are in what I've called pressure cooker home. You know, they're home with kids back home from yeah. school partner on the kitchen table working, no sort of space. So in that scenario, I'm suggesting everyone try and be their best selves at the minute because it's easy to get into conflict and, and to get very frustrated. Yeah, and for people down there in Melbourne, uh, I mean, it must be so tough to be going back through this, you know, the restrictions that they're under at the moment and, uh, you know, even those people in those uh, in those buildings that can't leave and whatever, I mean, that must be so tough on them. But um, I think it's been really tough, but I guess one thing I'd add in there is I think that many people have been caught up in the, the sort of the, the whirlpool of social media, that, that sort of algorithm-driven doomsdayness that's coming through your phone all day. Yeah. And so I'm very keen on you know people curating that social media and news and saying, okay, well, I can look at the news for a few minutes in the morning, but I, I really don't need every, you know, tiny number that comes out, not necessary. I also think uh, one strategy we've had in our home and I think is really useful is we call it the tap out, corona tap out. means if you're sitting there, you know, neurosing about the day's latest bad news, corona tap out, let's talk about something else uh. and, and just move on. And, and I think for kids in particular, that's really important. Because we can all be a bit obsessed with it at the moment, and it's going to be going for months in one form or another. Yeah. So we need strategies to just sort of contain some of that. 
Green, you touched on social media there and the impact, you know, during COVID, but even pre-COVID, I mean, what's your opinion, what's your take on social media itself with the role it plays in contributing or benefiting? Like, how can it help, but also it can hinder mental health just in general? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because it comes up a lot. And I think particularly young people, but everyone, you know, they're, their very sense of identity now is sort of melded with their their Instagram or their TikTok account. And incredibly sensitive to how people react to what they put up. So there again, I mean, you know, there's generational issue here, and and I think it's virtually impossible for young people to, to not be in that world. You sort of completely out of what's going on. But I think, again, learning some skills to curate it, to say, hang on, is that really, do you need to be there on that all the time? Maybe plug your phone in outside your bedroom at night. Um, maybe have a time where you switch off. And, and so I think we're really undergoing a grand social experiment about what this embracement of social media is actually um uh, doing to our minds, doing to our sense yeah. of identity. Um, and I think that's that's sort of quite interesting. So, you know, a lot more research to be done in that area. I did see some interesting research showing that, you know, by scanning, you know, using AI people's Facebook posts and Instagram posts, you know, they can sort of detect risks for depression and anxiety. You know, for example, on Instagram using lots of, dark filters or the, the content's changing on their Facebook post. So I guess, you know, we're more open to the world than we think when we when we start posting away on our uh, social media accounts. It was something that I was going to ask you next, Grant. I mean, we spoke about telehealth and social media. I mean, you've also been a co-author on a book with regards to uh, AI. Uh, tell us about how AI can actually help, um, not hinder, but help the mental health sector. I mean, do you have thoughts on that? Look, I think we're very much at the beginning and there's a bunch of sort of uh, mental health, you know, artificial intelligence um, initiatives, projects that are brewing around the world and they sort of roughly go into contact into um, categories of sort of diagnostic tools or monitoring tools or even treatment tools. I mentioned, you know, in that diagnostic area, there's some question about looking at people's social media posts, but there's all sorts of other new project programs that will sort of track your amount of movement on your GPS, on your, you know, using a watch, mm. um, that you're looking at your sort of levels of activity in various ways. All of this, I think, should have a big caveat over the top of it about privacy and about how that sort of information is used. And I think some of those ethical discussions around, um, you know, how we use AI or data in regards to people's mental health really needs a lot of safeguards around it. Um, so early days in that area, yep. there are other um, sort of programs out there looking at um, assessing prognosis I saw there was some research done around using the uh, results from people's scans as well as their activity to try and prognosticate how well they're going to do in, in the future years. And the AI crunches all sorts of data. So pretty sort of uh, brave new world sort of stuff. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how the AI can play a role. No, that's really good. I appreciate the, your insights on that. If we also, I also want to touch on Grant that I mean, you've been doing a fair bit of stuff over in China and Indonesia when, when typically when we're able to travel. Tell us about what your role is over there, what you've been doing, um, and, and about that. Yes, yeah, so look, I've been really privileged to work with uh, Dr. Hui Young at Monash University for more than a decade, and we've been going to China a couple of times a year and working with a lovely bunch of doctors in a town called Shenzhen, which is just over the border from Hong Kong. And it is, um, we've been working with GPs and training them in all sorts of physical 
health, general practice issues, but also quite a strong uh, focus on mental health as well. We've got a PhD student who's been looking at what are the Chinese doctors' perspectives on how they manage mental health in primary care. So pretty interesting, quite a lot of differences. And, and these doctors, I should say, apart from us going over there, we've been having waves of, of doctors coming over every three months to Melbourne, Australia, to uh, look at our health system. So a bit of a, um, you know, at this time, very difficult to travel. Yeah. But we have great relationships with them and, and chat away to each other on their equivalent of WhatsApp is WeChat. And uh, we're constantly uh, chatting and sending each other videos. And I think, um, you know, some of the findings from Kendall Searle's PhD, um, which she's published some of those already, um, about Chinese GP views on managing mental health. And she's got some good findings. Certainly, there's a lot of stigma about mental health issues in their patients. The GPs, don't really see themselves as primarily providing mental health care. They see that very much the terrain of the hospitals. And um, and they don't necessarily have the skills. You know, like, for example, they don't really have many sort of psychology skills. In many cases, they can't prescribe, for example, an antidepressant. So it's all pretty embryonic there. But at the same time, when I sit in their clinics, Patients are coming in exactly like in Melbourne with the same, you know, problems of life and, you know, a sense of despair or anxiety that characterise so many mental health conditions. Do you think GPs in Australia then are sort of somewhat leading, um, leading that comparatively compared to what you've seen in China? I think that we've seen a, a real... Um, transition over quite a few decades and I've got my father Tim who I mentioned to compare with. We actually did a talk together in China comparing uh, management of mental health by GPs in the 1960s in Australia compared to the 2000s and he told me you know 1960s in Australia the GPs really they would do their, their medical degree and put up their shingle and off they'd go and patients would come in with all sorts of aches and pains and sleeping problems. And, and, and the doctors really weren't quite sure what to do with them. They would give them rose water. Um, there was not really an overt discussion about maybe you've got depression, um, you know. And, and pretty similarly to what I see in, in China, people would take offence at that and say, what are you talking about? I don't have a mental health issue. So I've seen a massive transformation in Australia and um, GPs have ended up playing quite an important role in our mental health system. Do, do you think uh, we still have a way to go, Grant, with that, with the primary health system, the primary health care and, and mental health in Australia? I think we do. Um, I'm always mindful to you know, compare it around the world and, and there are some other countries that you are know, working quite hard on on primary care mental health. The UK is quite developed in that area. I think overall we're doing pretty well. I think the GP mental health care plans are a pretty good start. Um, keep in mind as well, you know, in the real world, you've got quite a variety of skill and interest amongst the GPs. Mm. So it could be anything from you know, a very pressured GP who's trying to get you back out the door in five minutes through to a, you know, a GP that's very happy to spend half an hour with you to try and do a, a detailed mental health plan. So yeah. one of the things I always say to the patients is get a little bit of a sense who's the GP you're going to see. So the the fountains of knowledge are generally the receptionists. <laughs> You ring up a clinic and go, listen, which doctors are sort of interested in mental health? They'll tell you. Yeah. Um, and that's a good idea because we're not one size fit all. You know, there'll be other GPs that are brilliant at taking off skin lesions or putting in your contraceptive injection. You know, we're, we're a mixed bunch. Oh, it's a good tip. Ring the receptionist and have a chat to them. That's, that's a great tip. 
Tell me as we uh, as we look to the the future and and the mental health space, uh, maybe as it relates to GPs or or just in general, up to you. But what do you think are some of the big challenges that we're going to be facing as it relates to mental health in the coming I think, years? Yeah, I think the big things prevention. Yeah, and often you know when I'm seeing people in their twenties and thirties and teaching them CBT stuff, you know, like why on earth wasn't I taught told about this when I was younger? Yeah. You know, that, that like a fault, you can get into faulty thinking and you can challenge it and stuff all has heaps of evidence behind it. So Beyond Blue has been working super hard um, in the schools. So, for example, we've got an incredible program called BU mm-hmm. and that's in 10,000 schools now. Um, whole in-depth education program backed up by people on phones and things for the teachers to upskill in um, mental health skills. And we know that 50% of adults with mental health issues develop those issues below the age of 14. So that's a great place to invest in our young people. And similarly, programs like Headspace, you know, get in early. There's a great opportunity to really change the trajectory of someone's life early on. So that prevention thing, I think, would be my number one. Equity and equity of access is still something we can do better. Mm. We're a huge country and it shouldn't be the case, but it is the case that, you know, the quality of care you're getting might be determined by where you live and mm. what sort of um, mental health services are available. Telehealth, you know, I think that's going to straddle some of that, but still there's big challenges to sort of get that those services into rural and regional places as well. And then I think the final thing I'd say is really clarifying where this rapidly changing world is all going to land in terms of technology, artificial intelligence, you know, global pandemics. Yeah. You know, there's so much change going on in the world. So it is an opportunity, you know, to pivot the system to make sure that we're we're using the finite resources in the best way we can. So that for some people, it might just be that they, they need to chat to some supportive people on a forum. And other people might need a 15-year trained psychologist to unpack a whole lot of complex issues they're going through. So I think that's important. Well, what a great response. Uh, and as we round for the straight um, to uh, finish out the, the podcast, Grant, I want, what, do you, what does the future hold for you? Where do you what's, what's on the horizon for you in the, in the near future? Are you more of the same? Are you doing something new? Um, yeah, look, I think um, I'm very excited and proud to be working with Beyond Blue. And I think that um, the work we're doing in the, in the mental health Shield is so important and, and I feel quite privileged to, to be able to add my little piece to the puzzle of the work we're doing there. I think concurrently, quite honestly, the emerging discipline of planetary health that I work at yeah. at the University of Melbourne is just not going to go away. Mm. Um, you know, we're seeing these planetary boundaries, the climate change. COVID is another one of those problems. You know, it was totally predicted that as humanity encroaches into wildlife, that we're going to get these zoonoses, you know, cross-species jumps of disease. So I see that through that same lens, that, you know, this is humanity over-pushing the system. And so I'm optimistic, we've talked about some pretty heavy topics, but I'm very optimistic that um, we will pivot, that if you look at humanity, we've risen to the the task, you know, post-Second World War, I'm sure the people sitting around in 1940s were thinking, my gosh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and, and look how well it all panned out. But we are going to have to come to terms with the planetary boundaries and rethink about the way we're running our society. And, you know, I think supporting fantastic young people to be part of that change is really where I want to put my energy. Fantastic. Is there anything else, Grant, that you wanna you wanna mention as as we close out? Is there anything else that you wanna you wanna say that we haven't covered? 
No, look, I think I've talked my head off at you. Hopefully your, your podcasters aren't too sick of me. No. Uh, but I, I wish them well um, in their endeavours. And I think that the mental health sector is just making a great contribution at the moment and we're really lucky to be in Australia. And Grant, I, I know you've authored or co-authored as well up to five books uh, and whenever you Google your name, you, you're everywhere. So I don't think it's hard. But if people do want to get in touch with you, um, how, how would they do that? I'm able to go to my website. It's got my email address on there and say hi. It's just my surname, blashky.com. Perfect. Well, Grant, you're certainly leading the field and you're very, you're very proactive in this space and uh, and we appreciate all the work that you're doing and Beyond Blue is doing uh, and we look forward to touching base again in the near future to hear about the wonderful things that you're doing um, and and certainly in the environmental health space. I think it's fantastic, the stuff you're doing, and, and uh, keep that up. Thanks a lot, Sam. All the best for your podcast, mate. Thanks, Grant. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.